You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid, plus the new special part of our um, website, Switched On, which focuses on electrification. And after that long intro, it's uh, my pleasure to welcome as usual ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Uh, I haven't had much sleep lately, Giles. It's been such a busy week of announcements and so exciting. Uh, and we've got a great guest uh, on to talk about some of that. Indeed, we do. Look, it's been a major week for all sorts of different reasons. Um, we got a outcome or an outcome from the COP28 climate um, negotiations. And we shall um, have a bit of a look at that later on in this episode. And of course, uh, we're recording this on Friday. And today we have the release of the draft integrated system plan, which is the um, AEMO's 30-year planning blueprint and full of all sorts of interesting scenarios and modelling and assumptions and recommendations of how to get to Australia's 82% renewable energy target and beyond. And there's some quite sort of jaw-dropping or really interesting conclusions from that. Now, to get to the 82% renewable energy target, which is sort of modelled by AEMO, we need some incentive to build things, wind, solar and storage. And a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Federal Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, came up with an expanded capacity investment scheme. Uh, This was expanded to 9 gigawatts of storage, with roughly about 4 hours of storage uh, for each gigawatt, um, plus 23 gigawatts of wind and solar. And I guess that was the major thing, putting wind and solar into a capacity investment scheme, when many others would have preferred something else, such as the renewable energy target, and possibly even tax credits or whatever. So, joining us today to discuss this, and what it all means for the market, and how it might possibly work, is uh, Anne Bailey from the uh, energy consultancy Boringa. Um, And thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Giles. It's great to be here. Let's kick off with the capacity investment scheme. Um, Is it a good idea? I'm looking at that's too too broad. No, no, I'm going to go with that. Sorry. (laughs) um, um, Yes. Is it what people want? Um, Is it what the industry needs? Well, I think from my view, um, and maybe to split, split the answer between storage and energy. The overarching answer is certainly yes. I think the um, support is welcome in terms of providing that level of certainty, uh, particularly on downside risk protection. Um, And we think it's necessary to accelerate both renewables and storage in order to hit that 82% goal. Um, There's obviously been quite a lot of discussion around the most appropriate mechanism uh, by which to incentivize renewables. Uh, But I think to reach that sort of scale and speed by the deadlines outlined, uh, we do think a a government support mechanism is needed. And um, particularly for storage, uh, this is a, a, a great option. 
Yeah, it's, it, it seems to be that um, it, it's sort of well accepted as this is a really good idea for storage. When I talk to people about the various tenders held in New South Wales, they think that the Altessas, which is kind of this sort of underwriting thing, provides a floor rather than a floor and a cap, uh, which we'll get to in the capacity investment scheme, works really well. Um, not so sure for wind and solar and things like that. Before we get into the fine details, and I'm sure David wants to plough into these, I'm just sort of wondering, I've seen a couple of an an analysis around saying that um, this is great, this is going to build a lot of new capacity, it's not going to quite get us there to 82%. I think I've seen various estimates saying, well, maybe 70% or 65, 70, 75, I'm not too sure. And there's a few questions left open about whether it actually incorporates things like the New South Wales infrastructure roadmap. Does that get subsumed? Is it 12 gigawatts that they're looking for over and above? Um, I don't know whether we actually know the answers to these questions. And do you have any estimates yourself? I mean, do you agree that the capacity investment scheme in of itself, as described, won't quite get us there to 82%, but might get us pretty close? Yes, well, so I, I would agree we're still working through um, some of the elements of, of um, just understanding exactly the detail of what this does and uh, the policy targets do and don't uh, apply to in terms of state schemes and, and already existing capacity. So I'd agree that there's some uncertainty there. Um, however, I would say that we we broadly do expect us to get you know close to 82 with this policy subject to the volumes being delivered um, that, that are outlined uh, in the policy targets. I guess an important point to note is um, this mechanism is a way to provide revenue certainty and, and, and de-risking to projects, but that is not the only barrier in deploying renewable technology. So it will need to be coupled, uh, you know, as, as it is being thought about with focused efforts on planning, transmission upgrade, social license, supply chain, all of the other good uh, challenges that we face as an industry. So it's clear to me when I looked at the ISP this morning uh, that in fact AEMO has more capacity getting built by 2030 to hit that 82% target than is being supported under the CIS. I think it comes to six gigawatts a year for seven years, rather than in the wind and solar side, six gigawatts a year that is supported for those years where the CIS is running. So six gigawatts a year is, as you say, uh, requires first and foremost, the planning departments to really get into gear. It's going, they are going to be the single biggest roadblock in my opinion. But in terms of the CIS, mechanism itself and I guess uh, broadly we haven't seen this floor price used much so far for wind and solar and um, it's not the same as a PPA price where the wind and the solar generator or developer knows what uh, revenue they're going to earn every year it's only a kind of insurance product so I guess my first question is a repeat of what Giles already asked uh, do you think how effective do you think it will actually be in procuring new supply? Well, I think it will be an effective mechanism to procure supply. I think the important thing it will be used for uh, is to provide some certainty to debt within a project. Um, I would imagine in a, in a competitive process, we will end up um, seeing floor prices bid you know, relatively low and, and to a level that 
can provide revenue security to debt that needs that level of security, but with equity uh, taking exposure to uh, prices, you know, outside of that mechanism and outside of that floor, I think then equity uh, investors have an opportunity either to hedge some of that residual risk with alternative contracts or additional contracts and or to take merchant exposure. Um, and certainly from what we've seen of, of equity players in the market at the moment, they do have the appetite to do that. And there is the appetite to sign those uh, additional contracts. Um, so, you know, I, I think focusing on de-risking revenues for debt is a, is a sensible um, way to approach this. Yeah, I, 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 and uh, I'd like to come back and talk a little bit more about uh, design and floor prices versus fixed prices, but um, if we could just cover off on a couple of the other headline uh, kind of things. This pri electricity prices don't are never fixed. I think this is the most important thing to understand for everyone, that if prices go high, that automatically induces responses that make them go down again over time. And they, they never hit this mythical long run equilibrium price. It just doesn't happen. But broadly speaking, um, what do you think this mechanism will do to electricity prices uh, and what kind of responses, what sort of second order, first order and second order effects, you know, very broadly? Yes, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more, actually, with what you say around uh, the cycle. That's how we, we look at price um, and supply and demand dynamics as well. Um, I should say there's a team beavering away at Beringa at the moment to run both the ISP as it's just been released and the CIS announcements through our reference case, which is our kind of long-term price projection. So we're still waiting to see where that lands. Um, but I think it's, it's you know, very clear to say in the situation that all of the CIS capacity comes in, um, we would expect downward pressure on prices and particularly compounded with uh, any coal staying on the system uh, you know, longer than is economic. I think the the interesting balance, though, will be looking at that coal closure um, timeline. So if coal capacity accelerates coming out of the system, as uh, as I believe is shown in the ISP, we would expect that to put upwards pressure on prices. So long answer to say sort of in summary would expect downward pressure on prices but the extent of that downward pressure um, depends very heavily on on what coal uh, is doing and, and how that's coming out of the system yes and just to spend a little bit more time on the mechanism by which that will occur i guess what more renewables will do I mean, more solar would reduce revenue in the middle of the day, but cause problems for everyone because something would have to be curtailed. More wind uh, will also have some impact on the evening peak prices, which is where coal and gas generators make all of their return. I'll make an incidental comment that although gas gets a, a great, a good longer term future in the ISP, if you look like I do at the detail, you'll see that actually gas generation is forecast to decline quite sharply uh, for about eight or nine years um, due to uh, um, 
having a lot of coal still in the system and lots more renewables. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is it will be uh, reduced revenue that will start to impact on the on, on the coal generators as much as reduced volume, do you think? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think revenue is what is sending the economic signal to coal. Um, uh, the way that we see it is um, uh, the market goes through these sort of uh, over and under supplied cycles. So I think um, if we look back a little bit towards kind of AMO step change and the um, state based plans that came in, the 43% target, that period in the market brought forward coal closures and, and raised uh, GWAs and incentivizing investment. I think recent history meant that transmission delays um, and, and some of the concerns about whether replacement energy would come into the market fast enough uh, has kind of caused some uh, concerns, I suppose, around security of supply. So states have started looking at delaying some of those coal closures. I think now with the CIS, we're in a new phase of that cycle with, um, you know, a strong policy ambition to bring forward that new replacement energy and get that back on track. So we're moving further towards a, a, an oversupply um, situation if everything stays on the system. And that I think naturally when people have confidence that the CIS volumes will be delivered, um, will lead to uh, existing capacity then you know, having the economic signal to, uh, to close earlier. I couldn't agree more, Anne. Uh, it's the confidence thing that's mm. going to be, is always key in business. And I don't think we'll solve that on this podcast, but uh, um, I am interested in how you are thinking about which projects within the wind and solar side, like the criteria in storage are somewhat simpler, but in wind and solar, it's clear that solar has a lower cost than, than wind, but not necessarily uh, a better value. Um, f from your understanding, and maybe I wish I'd been at an AIE seminar in Melbourne uh, where, there, where there was uh, a discussion about it, what sort of criteria do you imagine uh, would be appropriate uh, to be for, for, for awarding contracts? Well, um, I should start off by saying that the details of uh, the renewable CIS contracting mechanism haven't been uh, published. So we've got draft contracts for the storage contract uh, under the CIS, but not for renewables. But assuming that it does look like a revenue floor and potentially a cap, uh, and also that the financial assessment methodology is is similar to, for example, what's been used by um, the Altessas and New South Wales government. It's a consideration both of financial value as well as contract cost. And that financial value point is really important to the question that you just asked, David, around solar versus wind. Um, because wind tends to generate in periods of higher prices than solar does, the value to the system of new build wind uh, tends to be higher than solar. And that is taken into consideration as part of the evaluation assessment of these contracts. It's a trade-off between that financial value and then the contract cost. And that will allow, you know, solar, which is typically lower value, lower cost, and wind, which is typically higher value, higher cost, to compete on a level playing field. 
Yes, uh, I guess it'll be a lot of judgment <laughs> that's that's required and modelling and to some extent a bit of a black box in terms of being able to explain the outcomes to, to consumers uh, and, and I guess to point out why there may still be some cost to taxpayers. Just broadly speaking, uh, to put you on the spot a little bit, do you think there will be a, a big cost a, a big subsidy to taxpayers from this in in actuality i mean just if you had to guess um so uh, if you look at the mechanism design i guess there's there's two parts it can do it can kind of top up base case revenue for projects or it can provide downside risk uh coverage i would expect given um the volume of corporate demand and alternative kind of contracting routes to market that this mechanism will be playing primarily on the downside de-risking rather than revenue top up. Um, I do think to get the the level of acceleration that is being targeted to the 82%, we do see um, some revenue subsidy being needed to bring that generation forward. But I think this is primarily a kind of downside de-risking tool and you'd expect for the government then to have relatively low costs in normal market conditions um, but they are taking the risk that you know in, in very very low prices uh, the cost of the subsidy goes up. Yeah uh, I, and let's look at it again put ourselves in the shoes of both a, a, a retailer or large gentailer uh, the three ugly sisters, as I'm increasingly thinking of them. Um, um, and then secondly, um, uh, someone who's a developer. But let's look at it from the retailer's perspective to start with. What impact do you think the CIS broadly will have on their strategy? Will I mean, I'm inclined to think they'll just sit around now and wait for uh, developers to win awards and then come to them for some kind of shorter term contract uh, to, to, to give equity some uh, clear view about its revenue for at least part of the, part of the contract output? Yeah, I think they will do a mixture of both. Um, and we have seen Gen Taylor's bid into uh, these sorts of processes as proponents as well as um, being off takers of, of some of the shorter term contracts. I think what's interesting about having the government providing an alternative uh, low price long term de-risking mechanism is that it does allow players um, who need that kind of coverage for debt to enter the process and then as you say sell shorter term, uh, probably slightly higher price contracts through to Gen Taylors. And actually, those shorter term contracts are probably a better match for ultimately what business customers want uh, within the Gen Tail portfolio. So uh, while there have been some large corporates willing to sign very long term renewable contracts, I would say, you know, certainly the vast majority of businesses would rather have a slightly shorter um, uh, fixed price tenure. So I think that's good in terms of liquidity of those shorter term contracts and availability of those to Gen Taylors. I do think though that uh, the Gen Taylors do see the opportunity in uh, development and being the, the asset owners as well. Uh, and I think they will be quite competitive in 
processes with a cap and floor because of their uh, ability to take and manage merchant risk. So that that tends to mean someone can bid a lower floor and, and perhaps a higher cap uh, than somebody that needs a significant amount of risk coverage. So yeah, I, I, I think both. I, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, in my view, it's the large gentiles that should be, should, are in the best position to do the vast majority of, of the development. It's just that so far they haven't wanted to because they've had other reasons like protecting their coal generation. But if we now uh, turn it around and look at it from the position of, uh, I don't know, one of the large uh, sort of uh, developers out there, potential developers like a Tilt or an Ibera Dola or CWP, whatever it's called these days, just generally speaking, do you think they should be rushing in or uh, waiting a little while to see how things, I mean, how, what would you would be advising them about strategy tactically? And I appreciate it's a very difficult question and that whatever advice people give is, is subject to change uh, as things develop. But I mean, how do you think it will develop? Yeah, good good question. I mean, um, as you say, strategy will be probably quite dependent on, on people and their portfolios. But I think um, with any regular competitive auction process, uh, your ability for success and, and for securing a, a reasonably high price, which is what obviously bidders into the process will be looking to do, will be based on the, the supply demand dynamics at that point. Um, so to, uh, you know, put, put a stake in the sand, I would suggest that people would be looking to rush into this first process, particularly given that there'll be a relatively limited um, number of projects necessarily that are ready to, to move as fast as bidding into a process um, early next year. I think then it will be a matter of... Um, uh, thinking about how the interaction of these contracts uh, interacts with anything else on a route to market strategy. One interesting implication, I think, of having uh, these rev regular auctions is I do think there's going to be a period where um, the large portfolio developers need to kind of really quite rapidly think about how this impacts their route to market strategy, if at all, and, and make sure that that's in place so we don't get into a situation where um, uh, the interaction between a kind of, say, a corporate PPA or a Gentile PPA and bidding into this process, where there's a bit of a kind of chicken and egg situation um, and the interaction of the two contracts aren't clear and therefore it, it slows down the, the process on pricing. I think the SIS, or at least the, the storage SIS, is designed in a way um, which minimises that interaction between the two. Um, but I do think people are going to be very busy in Jan and Feb trying to work out how this upcoming series of auctions uh, changes their, their strategy. And it will be important to have that fixed yeah. going into the year. Yeah, I, I think in the process of handing back to Giles, I'd make the comment, I think you, you hit it right on the nail when I think about it now, at, at right at the beginning in saying that actually in this first auction, there's probably going to be a shortage of prices, uh, uh, a shortage of projects. And so prices are likely to be higher uh, as we go on. And the planning department's uh, basically uh, forced to 
to to approve projects faster, there'll likely be more, and and therefore competition will be higher. But back to you, Giles. Yeah, thanks, um, uh, David. Um, and I'm I'm particularly interested in what your view is on what's going to happen to the LGC price because I mean, you know, one um, there's a large part of the industry that wanted the rec to be continued, and there's some considerable debate about what will happen to the price now. Um, some had already expected it to fall quite dramatically, but it hasn't. It seems to be resilient. No one really seems to be too sure why. And this seems to be important because of a couple of things. One, because it, um, if you think the rets are going to have some sort of value out to 2030, then that may affect the price that you might bid into the auction. Two, it just seems ironic that at the time when we finally have a national electricity objective into the NEM, and we have the AEMO talking about sort of putting a carbon price estimate into the final draft of the ISP, we seem to be removing the only sort of um, environmental signal that we actually have in the market at the moment, which is the, which is the REC. So, um, oh, about three questions in there. So what, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> and what do you think should happen? I mean, is there an argument to extend the REC in some form, not maybe as the primary mover, but as, you know, just to have like a, a lingering carbon price? Um, yeah, there you go. Unravel all that. Series of good questions. Um, I mean, I would start off by saying, yeah, we we agree. I think the uh, the movement in the uh, LGC price has been small downwards movement over the the applicable period so far, but but relatively minor um, in the scheme of things. I, I think what is clear, um, well. <laughs> I say clear, I, I think it's really important to realise that some really important aspects of the design, particularly for the CIS for renewables, have not been published yet. So the biggest part for me is uh, the extent to which the Commonwealth Government will retire or retrade any green products associated with the contracts. Um, that to me feels like the biggest determinant of, of impact on LGC prices going forward. But I do think what's clear with the CIS is that um, I think the market is expecting that because of the CIS announcement, it is unlikely, as you say, that the RET um, will be extended. And, and that's what's causing that price impact. I would say um, my understanding is that uh, the CIS, though, has been described as a sort of an interim um, policy measure to make sure that we get to that 2030 target and that there is work uh, which will be ongoing looking at post-2030 uh, NEM reform and, and design. And I would expect that to tackle the aspect of yeah, the benefit of having a green certificate or guarantee of origin or anything like that um, so, beyond 2030. So the might not be dead yet. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. It'll be, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see. No, 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 it's true. And, and, and indeed, that the announcement about the um, CIS did actually, and, and the recent energy minister's meeting did actually talk about the sort of redesign of the market post-2030, which would be good seeing we failed to redesign the market post-2025, as was, was planned, um, which is why we actually have the CIS. 
Can I just then go back just to quickly what you're talking with David about utilities? Because one of the um, assumptions or one of the immediate reactions to the CS was that oh, this is going to actually you know diminish the the power of the incumbent utilities and people like Origin, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and create more competition in the market. But from what you, I mean, you didn't say so explicitly, but from what you're saying to David, I mean, they do have um, you know um, that might not be the case. I think they have an important role to play still in in all of the market. I think it's it's true on the storage side that without the CIS, um, really a, a, an offtake with a large gen tailor is one of the um, uh, key ways to de-risk a battery project. And, and with the presence of the CIS, that's probably broadened the playing field um, by the government taking some of the uh, extreme risk and and leaving a more manageable risk profile that, that's acceptable to a broader range of people than just Gen Taylors. So I, I agree it's broadening the field, but I think Gen Taylors are bidding into that process as a participant and also are still one of the key um, off-takers and, and people who are able to manage and optimize uh, batteries and, and use that storage capacity to ultimately service customer demand. So uh, I think they'll play an important um, part in the market still in both of those ways. One more question for me about the CIS before we get on to other things, and, and, and I'll just leave it for David if he's got another question for you about the CIS or some more questions. Um, there does seem to be an awful lot to do before the first auction comes around um, in the first half of um, 2024. Um, there's a lot of questions unanswered. Um, do you get a, an impression that a lot of work's been done at the kind of already half or three quarters answered and people know kind of where we're heading? Or is there a lot of debate and a lot of movement still to happen? It's a good question. I must say, I don't have, you know, full visibility into the inner workings. Certainly the calls that we're getting for clients suggest uh, there's <laughs> a very busy January coming up as, as people get their um, understanding in order. I think particularly on the renewable side of things, um, there is still quite a lot of uncertainty, um, which we will be eagerly awaiting in terms of announcements on on details and and draft contracts, um, I think on the storage side it's it's a lot more clear and there's you know potential small tweaks to understand, but but the majority of the mechanism is well understood. So again, I guess and just before uh, move on to the other staff, just uh, the, the key thing really about the CIS is that it is a floor and cap side of things, and I, I'm sure the floor price is going to be the relevant thing and the cap price will be not all that relevant. But it's, I just wondered, Beringa operates internationally and I noticed in Spain they had a, um, um, uh, a storage kind of or firming type of tender where value was the criterion and rather than just price and they're moving to a floor price. Uh, what, what, uh, how does the CIS look in terms of its design uh, compared to what Beringa is seen internationally and, you know, our floor price is better overall, uh, however you define that, than straight, uh, simple uh, CFDs. Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think um, looking at other markets like the UK and uh, Europe, who've gone through various different policy mechanisms to support renewables, certainly the revenue uh, focus and, and a cap and floor rather than a single strike price 
in my mind is a good way to go, um, particularly because you're using government subsidy just to underwrite um, downside risk in order to accelerate things rather than uh, provide people sort of base case revenues, which I think the market is much more comfortable with valuing and, and, and baking into investment cases. Um, the, the, there's quite a lot of debate at the moment about the necessity for the cap side of things. Um, certainly, this has been something that politically has come into um, uh, auction designs in, in Europe and the UK due to kind of political kickback from windfall profits, for example, when prices are extremely high. So I do see quite a lot of appetite for, for the cap. Um, but as you say, I think the much more important uh, aspect of this is is the floor price and ensuring that the government is underwriting only the risk that needs to be underwritten to deliver the transition at the pace it's looking to do so. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I, I'm still uh, could talk about the CIS an awful lot. Uh, but Giles, I do think uh, we owe our listeners uh, to talk a little bit about this very exciting ISP 2024. And to me, it looks like uh, the 2022 ISP on steroids, you know, and from uh, what, uh, what I take away from it more than anything is the confidence that uh, AEMO expresses in its previous view that we can build a reliably, largely wind and solar uh, system providing the bulk energy with a, uh, a huge contribution from behind the meter and that this is likely to result in coal exiting earlier than formal closures and even that may be too conservative at least in terms of the coal closures. Having said all that, Giles, before you, you chip in, um, I, I would add that AEMO's incentive, and I always look at why people say things as much as what they say, uh, AEMO's incentive is to make sure that lots of new supply gets built because they ultimately get punished if the lights don't stay on. Uh, and so that's their first job. No, look, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you think um, they're basically sort of putting out a blueprint here for us to sort of, you know, essentially you know, decarbonise the grid within 15 years. Um, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, gas. It's, it's kind of interesting what they're talking about, gas. They, they suddenly said, oh, we need more capacity. We need 16 gigawatts of gas rather than 10 gigawatts previously thought. But they do make the point that, one, this will be really switched on. Um, their generation charts show that gas will really be used in that sort of 10-year period from 2025 to about 2035 and the last of the coal plants exits and then they actually make the point that when gas generation does return in sort of scale it might not actually be fossil gas at all it might be sort of clean um, quote unquote gas from biomass or um, possibly preferably um, from from green hydrogen um, as you mentioned I think some of the interesting things about the uh, a, uh, um, the ISP are the recognition of household and clean uh, um, consumer energy resources um, they've ramped up the forecast quite considerably on the uptake of rooftop solar, um, distributed storage, um, how the importance or the, the speed of electrification, which I think is sort of taking them by surprise. They observe that um, that household consumption will actually quadruple to about 150 terawatt hours by 2050, but they're actually drawdown from the grid will only be 40 terawatt hours, which just basically means that sort of this huge extra um, demand will be met by the consumers themselves. Now that's a whole new 
ball game in the way that you think about grids and you manage grids and um, and I might add for utilities about the way they think about their business models and manage their business models and my final observation before handing back to you is the speed with which the AEMO is predicting the exit of coal basically underlines the point that really we have no choice but to build new wind and solar and storage happily um, or the sensible forecast say that this is by far the cheapest me method but even if it wasn't the cheapest method you couldn't actually do anything else because the nuclear debate um, which it in energy circles is kind of like laughed at but it seems to have some sort of currency out there in the greater wide world world it just makes no sense for Australia because look the coal plants are going to shut down within 15 years we have to build something nuclear even if it was cheap um, and sort of theoretically available um, it's not going to get here anywhere near in the time frame needed for Australia so we really have uh, no choice uh, but to go ahead with this renewable transition and um, happily it's the cheapest option uh, yes Giles so you know I, I, I personally see the nuclear through a uh, political lens um, it's because the uh, Liberal Party doesn't want to support wind and solar uh, uh, and, and so they have to support something else. Nuclear might be um, completely implausible in every sense, but <laughs> it's almost like life after death in a religious sense. You can sell it to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't mean to, uh, to say that. It, it's just that you can sell it as a political alternative, and I don't want to spend any more time on it. But I do note that the uh, ISP included the Victorian offshore wind, but no New South Wales offshore wind, which I think is in, entirely correct. Yes, well, um, and, and, and just to just to interrupt there, it did it did quite specifically mention it. What it wasn't clear, it, it it said it wasn't clear how the prices would resolve itself because they just said offshore wind is a lot more expensive than onshore wind, so it didn't see yeah, exactly the point. It, it, it was quite explicit about that. Yeah, it noted that um, behind the meter generation has peaked at I think 48% of NEM demand for a you know a half hour which is an incredible statistic I mean we, it's amazing how humans we become used to stuff if you'd said five or six years ago that rooftop solar was going to be 48% of total NEM demand and something like 10 to 12% of year-long 24-7 uh, um, uh, demand you'd have been laughed at you'd have been laughed at at a lot of things so uh, it is interesting to see how quickly we've come uh, in, in, in a short space of time. Look, we're going to be talking more about the ISP, I hope. Uh, so maybe not too much more to say on, on it just today in, in those headlines, is there? No, not really. But let's talk about the, because um, at the same time as the ISP, the um, orderly exit uh, mechanism, which was flagged at the last energy minister's meeting, was was released um, overnight um, in preparation for Friday. And this essentially gives the energy ministers the power to um, tell a coal-fired generator, you can't exit now because you haven't got enough wind, solar and storage built. Um, this is really interesting in the context of Araring because New South Wales is going cap in hand or something in hand to Origin Energy saying, can you please stay open? for another year or two and Origin will say well how much and um, what can you do about a rash dam and things like that um, state governments like Queensland and WA just will say well we have <laughs> we own these assets so we can tell them whether, whether to stay or go or whatever so um, I'm not too sure what you make of this new ability and it really is designed for New South Wales and no one else it just basically gives Penny Sharp or whoever is the energy minister at the time the ability to sort of say no you stay open and um, the regulator will fix you up with your costs 
I doubt very much if it'll be as simple as that. Uh, I, no. I, um, you know, uh, I think that um, if it wasn't done with agreement of, say, origin, there'd be a big legal fight about the legality uh, of what the New South Wales government is proposing, is what I would say. Uh, I, um, but I, I don't want to get... I'm not a lawyer, but I just cannot imagine you can just pass legislation telling private enterprise to do to stay open or close. I mean, this is not a communist country that we live in, uh, I hope. Uh, uh, Dep but, depends whether you listen to Sky News after that or not, but I guess... Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the COP28, let's move on to there. Um, really, look, I mean, look, I, used to, I went to so many of them and I swore I'd never go to another one after Paris and... Um, um, I might have to go to another one if there is um, it's hosted in Australia in a couple of years' time. Um, it's sort of a typical COP, really, in the sense that they did just enough to sort of keep going and keep hope going. Um, important in the sense that for the first time, and you can imagine how, why it took them three decades to actually start talking about the exit and phase out of fossil fuels, and they managed to sort of talk only about the transition away from fossil fuels, um, only in the electricity system. Um, the scientists are just sort of saying, well, look, that's all very well, and it's important, and that's good, but it's not going to cap um, global warming at 1.5 degrees, so we're still heading for a catastrophe. Um, I'm not too sure whether we can expect anything any better from COP28, given that it has to have agreement from 200 countries, and you could probably think of at least a dozen, and they're going to sign on to anything that approaches the science. Yes, and there was also uh, mention of trebling renewables, and I think what it does is to provide a benchmark that individual country politicians can take back to their people and say, well, this is what the world has agreed on, um, uh, therefore we're fully uh, legally, morally, politically justified in going at least this far, and in some cases they will go further, and in some cases they will go less. Uh, China, as I read, had a bit of an attitude there where they supported some bits, particularly around methane, uh, reductions, but uh, didn't sign up, I don't think, to some of the wording around coal. And uh, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Look, Giles, my overwhelming feeling is that uh, the, the CIS and the ISP lay out a very clear vision. We wouldn't need um, legislation uh, which will be difficult to impose on coal stations like Araring if uh, New South Wales governments got their planning departments act together in regard to REZs. We also saw this from the Clean Energy Investment Group um, um, uh, recommendations for state critical infrastructure, and I'm sure the same sort of thing applies, although less so in Victoria. Uh, it seems to me we could declare an entire REZ as state critical infrastructure, do a set of baseline studies, broadly work out a socially acceptable places with developers and stakeholders where the wind and the solar should go. And once that's broadly worked out, which should happen in the next six months, <laughs> uh, then let's go ahead and basically, if you're going to put uh, something there, it does, it, you get your EIS approved in 60 days and, and move on to the... And, you know, amongst that, you have to abolish uh, appeals just because 50 people are unhappy because in the current climate, Barnaby's going to have uh, 50 of his tribe running around objecting to everything. I mean, that's guaranteed. And so that's an automatic six-month adder unless New South Wales uh, and in Victoria can find a way to get over that. 
Yes, well, Barnaby would be very pleased. Um, this week, there was two projects actually got sort of development approvals. Um, the um, Oxley Solar Farm and Battery, uh, just south of Armadale, and also the Hills of Gold, which is a heavily contested project um, and is now much reduced, like about half the number of turbines originally saw it, which is... Um, um, further south in his electorate. Um, and just quickly back to you, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Um, just just your observations there, what you, um, I mean, I sort of summing up with David, you know, it's been a big week. We've got the COP28, we've got the CIS, we've got the ISP. I mean, are you sort of, you know, confident that we're heading in the right direction? It certainly has been a big week. Um, the team here across all of our teams, actually, so sort of market modelling policy, whether it's operational transformation, have all been running around um, keeping on top of the news. I feel it's heading in a good direction. Um, you know, is, is it enough? Do we need to do more? No, I'm sure there are other um, other things that we need to do and look at, uh, particularly in the hard to abate sectors and outside of the electricity market. Um, but it does feel like things are moving in a in a good direction, um, you know, even if it's just one step along the road. Yeah. Well, look, thank you very much, Anne, for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, David. Um, thank you to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for their continued support. Um, look, we've got a great podcast coming up next week um, with Aemo unravelling some of the fine details. And if uh, Chris Bowen is out there, um, he's welcome to um, join us for a podcast as well. We'd love to hear more details about what happened behind the scenes in COP. And perhaps he can ask some of these questions that we've been posing about the CIS and the plans for 2024. Um, do catch up with our other podcasts. Podcasts, um, Solar Insiders in particular, and our uh, Switched On podcast. Fantastic interview coming up about the experience in Lord Howe Island, which is now 13% EV penetration, 80% solar. How could they possibly manage? Well, um, we will find out, and we'll need to find out because that's what the whole country will be headed towards um, pretty soon. So thanks for listening. Um, one more week to go before Christmas. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.